Everybody? That uh, video is an advertisement that was due to go out in our cinemas. Um, it should have been going out in our cinemas around about now, actually, uh, along with the Star Wars movie. Uh, the idea was quite simple. Uh, it was the Church of England thought to get a load of ordinary folk, get them to recite the Lord's Prayer, and from that to encourage people to think about what it is to pray and to just pray. They did it all in the right way. They took it to the British uh, Board of Film Classification who said, yep, nothing wrong with that at all. Gave it a use certificate. It was all set to go out when the distributors and the uh, owners of the cinemas took a look at it and they got scared. In fact, it ended up with much more publicity than perhaps it would have received which isn't a bad thing. What were they frightened of? What was it that they thought offended them or might offend others? It's only the Lord's Prayer. I don't know about you, but I used to say it just almost automatic when I was at primary school. I can still remember Mr. Harrington, the rather scary-looking headmaster, with his rather curly eyebrows. <laughs> Still haven't got over those. Telling us we shall now stand, boys and girls, and we shall say the Lord's Prayer. And we'd say it. To be quite honest, I would say it by rote, and it wouldn't really perhaps mean much, certainly to perhaps some of my friends around me. But as I've started to look at the Lord's Prayer this morning, I've started to get a little bit of an inkling as to why it may be that it could offend people. Contained in this prayer, we have an offer of belonging to an identity that opposes the myth we're just a speck of dust in a massive universe. It recognizes that we live in a broken world and it isn't meant to be like this. It's countercultural in that. It's non-consumist. It just asks for what we need. It admits that we're not perfect, but it offers an opportunity for reconciliation. Yes, it says we continue to make mistakes. And we don't live in a Disney fairy world where everything lives happily ever after. It tells us that God is God, he has won, he is powerful, he should be glorified, and we need to humble ourselves and recognize that. So actually, maybe this prayer is a bit more radical than we thought. In the words of Bishop Stephen Croft, he's the Bishop of Sheffield, there are only 63 words in the Lord's Prayer, and it takes less than a minute to say them. Yet these words shape our identity, give purpose to our lives, check our greed, remind us of our imperfections, offer a way of reconciliation, build resilience in our spirits, and cause us to live to the glory of our Creator. No wonder they have been banned in the boardrooms of consumer culture. It's radical. So, at the risk of radicalizing us this morning... Let's turn to the passage. Matthew chapter 6. 
and verse, or starting at verse 5. If you need a Bible, put your hands up. Church Bibles are coming around. If you happen to have a church Bible, it's on page 970. If not, it's Matthew 6, and we're reading from verses 5 through to 18. These are the words of Jesus. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. They think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others what they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put on oil on your head and wash your face so that you will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Quite a familiar passage. It's uh, part of a series we're going through at the moment, and they're all quite familiar passages. So we're taking another fresh look at a familiar, familiar passage this morning. First thing to note about this passage is Jesus says, when you pray. He doesn't say, if you pray. He doesn't say, if you fancy giving this a try, he says, when you pray. So when should we pray? (laughs) Interestingly, Martin Luther says this, work, work from morning until late at night. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall have to spend the first three hours in prayer. I guess he did on occasions. Paul, to the uh, letter of, Uh, His first letter to the church of Thessalonia says, Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We are to pray continually. Hmm, What does that mean? Giving thanks whatever is happening. Problem is, prayer doesn't come naturally, does it? It's quite difficult. Oh, sorry, Jesus also 
set some examples. Here's some verses. In Mark, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. After he had dismissed them, this is in Matthew, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And then in Luke, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Jesus led by example. The disciples saw what was happening. But they realized that this was something that didn't come naturally. And so essentially they turn to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray. And what follows is the passage of him teaching us the Lord's Prayer. It doesn't come naturally. But the writers of the Hebrews suggest that we should do it boldly. We should approach his throne in Hebrews 4. James also says we should do it with sincerity, honor, and humbleness. So how should we do it? Well, the thing about praying is it's key to our relationship with God. Julia and I have recently had, uh, I call it a privilege, the privilege of spending some time with a couple that are about to get married. They're not part of this church. In fact, they're part of a church down in Bristol. And as they were due to get married, uh, they were encouraged to take uh, marriage classes. Uh, The lady concerned is actually working for the church. And normally the person in that church that does the marriage classes is her line manager. And they just thought it wouldn't quite fit. So they were looking for somebody else uh, to take that on. And they asked us whether we would consider meeting up with them on a regular basis for three or four sessions, to take them through some form of marriage preparation, which we've done. It's been quite interesting, actually. It's been quite revealing ourselves as we've looked at our marriage and looked at how we can encourage them in different areas. But it doesn't matter what area we're looking at. It doesn't matter what subject area of marriage we're looking at. It keeps coming back to one thing. Communication. Communication between each other and communication between them and God. I came across this cartoon. Emily wife, could you just just pick up some milk, Emily wife, while you're, you're at the store? Just go ahead, Emily wife, and just, just go to the milk section, Emily. Just grab some milk, Emily, and just, just place it right in your cart, wife. Emily wife, just thank you, Emily wife. Says at the bottom there, if we talk to people the way we talk to God. Well, I don't know how you speak to your wife or your husband, but actually we can approach our God at a level that allows us to be relating to him. And actually through how we pray and how we spend time in prayer, we will find that our relationship with God will just grow and grow and grow. So three things I want to just cover this morning before we have an opportunity to respond um, in communion a little later on. The first of this is this. The passage contains the Lord's Prayer. 
And I believe it is a good pattern for prayer. There is nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. Millions of people do it every day. In fact, they reckon at any particular second, in any particular day, somewhere, somewhere, someone in the world will be saying the Lord's Prayer. But I don't believe Jesus taught it in a way to say, record these words, this is the magic prayer, it will cover everything, even though actually it does cover everything. But actually I think he was talking about it in way of a pattern. So let's look at uh, that pattern. Firstly, our Father. We have a relationship with God and we're allowed to address him as Father. Why are we allowed to address him as Father? Because we are his sons and daughters. It is something that he has done through Christ. We have that privilege and he gives us that identity. That's the first thing to recognize. We can come to our Heavenly Father and we can treat him as our Father and all of that means. But we have to do it in a reverent way. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed. Honor. Give honor to his name. Names are important and God's name is the most important of all. I'll come on to that a little later. We need to put him in the place of honor. You may have noticed that, um, well I certainly did, Darren chose a number of songs that have allowed us to do that this morning. Giving him the glory. Giving him the right prominence in our approach to him this morning. He should be the most important thing in our lives. So when we're praying, Jesus is saying we need to start thinking about who he is, what his attributes are, his greatness, his wonder, the splendor of a king. Sometimes when you come to prayer, there's nothing wrong with singing one or two songs in prayer. Use some of the songs that we've used this morning. Can I swap battery packs with you, Darren? kingdom come, your will be done. How do we expand on that? Well, in short, we want to do what he wants to do. We need to pray for his will to come, whatever the situation. We need to pray for those in government or those in leadership, that they might also be sensitive to God's kingdom and God's will. We need to pray for the church and its influence for God's kingdom, that we might be faithful to our mission. When we think about mission, we need to pray for mission work and evangelism. We need to pray for justice and peace. We need to pray for people who are in our own circle of family and friends who need to welcome Jesus and his agenda into their lives. 
We need to pray for those who are struggling with health or other personal issues, that God will be, uh, that God's will will be done in those situations, and that His kingdom will be advanced through everything. And we need to pray for the second coming of Jesus, our King. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That just encapsulates a huge amount of opportunity to pray. Give us today our daily bread. Another simple phrase indicating we're to pray for, yes, our basic needs. Bread is a basic need. But we're also to pray for our spiritual needs. And also pray for others that their needs might be met. Then a challenging um, section. Forgive as we forgive. This is perhaps the most challenging part of the whole prayer. I put here, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your own sinful attitudes and actions and seek God's forgiveness. We're to thank God for the forgiveness that is ours through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're to repent of the things that we need to be forgiven. We need to set a new course. We need to set a new direction. We can pray for those who have sinned against us, forgive them and ask God to forgive them. Whether or not those individuals recognize their own need for forgiveness. We need to pray for our enemies. Either enemies personally or perhaps uh, our families, our churches, our nation. This is what Jesus is encouraging us to do. Lastly, we're to pray for protection. We're to pray for the tough times. We're to pray for those who are going through persecution. You see, the Lord's Prayer encapsulates in itself a pattern for prayer. I once, when I was younger, well, that's always going to be the case, isn't it? When I was a lot younger, I went to a youth uh, celebration and the speaker got up and spoke on the subject how to pray for at least an hour. Uh, You can just imagine me as a 16-year-old going, an hour? (laughs) And he used the Lord's Prayer and he took us through it in a similar way. And he said, actually, when you start to expand these very short statements, when you start to understand what goes behind them, what it is actually to pray to our Heavenly Father, then an hour is probably never going to be enough. But actually, forget for a moment an hour. We're told to pray continually. Prayer is difficult, isn't it? Prayer is something that we perhaps sometimes beat ourselves up about. Sometimes we find ourselves saying the same thing over and over. Perhaps they're just little polite prayers, prayers that you know, really aren't getting to the point. Prayers that aren't dealing with the issues. Sometimes, however, we can find ourselves in such tough prayers that we find ourselves wrestling with God. And there's nothing wrong with wrestling with God. In fact, Jesus himself wrestled with God in a very 
famous prayer. So we're talking about wrestling with God. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he prayed that prayer, he was wrestling with his father. And it is not wrong to be wrestling with God. If you think about wrestling with God in the Bible, there's one character that immediately comes to mind. Jacob. Jacob famously wrestled with God. And I just want to spend a a little time just looking at that little account and a couple of things we can learn from how Jacob wrestled with God. To give you some background for those that perhaps are not as familiar with the Old Testament as others. Jacob, the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, was born a twin. Him and his brother Esau, but Jacob came out second, but hanging on to the heel of his brother Esau. And he was given the name Jacob, which means supplanter, one that tries to take away that thing that doesn't belong to him. A name that perhaps indicated what was to follow. Him and his brother didn't always get on. It has to be said. There were two famous incidences. Of course, Jacob, not being the firstborn, didn't have all the rights that perhaps he wanted. And there's one story, you can read it, uh, I think it's other chapter 28, 29, somewhere around there in Genesis, when his brother Esau is off hunting. Now, you've got to imagine these two brothers. One of them is very much the brawn and one is very much the brain. And Esau the brawn is off hunting and he's exhausted and he's coming back from the hunt and he finds his brother Jacob has got a nice pot of stew going. He's famished. And he says to his brother, give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, yep, I'll do that in exchange for your birthright. And in a moment, he gives it away. Esau says, yep, you can have that in exchange for just a little pot of stew. And Jacob gets what he wants, the supplanter. A little later on, Isaac is planning to bless Esau. He has a blessing for him sends him off to uh, go and kill an animal, perhaps as the celebration feast, as part of this blessing. While he's away, Jacob's mother says to Jacob, look, your father's near blind. He won't know it's you. Okay, you're not as hairy as your brother, but put some animal skins on your arms. and When he touches you, feel the hair, and imagine you're, you're Esau, and you'll receive the blessing. And he did. And it worked. Except he rather upset Esau. And Jacob ran. He fled the scene. He got out of there because he feared for his life. He settles down eventually because he meets another three characters. Uh, A a lady by the name of Rebecca, her sister Leah, and their father Laban. He falls in love with Rebecca. And he goes to Laban and says, give me your daughter as my wife. And he says, yeah, I'll do that in exchange for seven years of you working for me. And he says, yeah, that's fine. So he does that. 
And then in a bit of a turn of tail, Laban pulls a trick on Jacob. And when it comes to the wedding, we end up with a situation where um, Laban decides he's going to present Leah as the bride and not Rebecca. How does he get away with it? Well, it's a very heavily veiled wedding, not the sort of vows we have today, think more burqa. He might have been able to see the eyes, but he would have no clue that he was marrying the wrong woman. And rather ironically, a similar trick to how he's been playing with his brother in years gone past is played on him. He gets over that and says to Laban, well, can I still marry Rebecca? And for another seven years, he does. And actually, he does quite well. He's quite a clever chap. He becomes quite wealthy. By some clever breeding program, he manages to get all the good sheep. He owns quite a few cattle, quite a few sheep. And he's doing rather well when he hears that his brother is coming to find him. And he gets scared. And we pick up the story in uh, Genesis 32. If you're in the Church Bibles, it's page 36. And verse, uh, yeah, chapter 32, verse 22. He's sent, by the way, all of his belongings and his wives on ahead out of the way. In fact, he's tried to, to split the camp so that he can, you know, he's doing everything he possibly can to manage to keep himself together. And he finds himself alone and scared. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and the eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream and sent over all of his possessions, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that, he may, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said to him, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's always after something, is Jacob. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with human beings and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob finds himself all alone and finds himself wrestling with God and God changes him. Note he asks him his name. <laughs> Interesting thing that, that God asked Jacob his name because one would have thought that God would know that it was Jacob. And of course he did. But actually, if you think about it, how he answers is this. He doesn't, well, he does. He says, my name is Jacob. 
But he says, my name is Supplanter. I'm the one that's always going to grab what I want for myself. I'm the one that's always going to take it. I'm the one that's in control. And God says, no, you're going to be called Israel. Israel essentially means the man who wrestles with God. I personally believe it is right for us to wrestle with God. I believe that we don't wrestle with God enough. Third point. Oh. <laughs> Let's read this quote first from C.S. Lewis. I prayed because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me and all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. Who are we praying to? C.S. Lewis said there, we're praying to a God who if we really earnestly go about our prayer with him, if we wrestle with him in prayer, will change us in a way and strengthen us. It doesn't change God. God remains the same. It changes us. It is in him that we have our identity. Identity is important to God. Names are important to God. And God wants to develop you and make you aware of your identity in him. I've become more and more aware recently of the really daft thing to say when you meet somebody for the first time. And that is this, what do you do? Because it doesn't tell you anything, really. And actually, sometimes it puts people in a really awkward situation. What we do does not give us our identity. It's God that gives us our identity. So why aren't we putting more of our trust in God? Why are we not, perhaps, seeking a change in our identity? What's getting in the way? I was given a book for Christmas. My mother gave it to me. It is entitled The Dark Night of the Shed. Now that's nice, a book about sheds. Turns out it's a book about men, spirituality, and the midlife crisis. I don't know why my mother thought that I needed a book on midlife crisis. Just occurred to me Julia might have put it up to it. But he tackles a number of things, and one of the things he tackles is prayer and our relationship with God. And one of the challenges in that book, one of the things I just want to leave you with, is he starts to identify some of the things that get in our way in our relationship with God. Some of the things that perhaps we ought to deal with in our wrestling with God. Some of the things that we ought to bring to God in prayer. And they are other gods. He names them. They're quite humorous, actually. So I thought I'd give you a few. I've not covered all of them, but let me just give you some examples. Maybe one or two of these you'll be able to identify. Firstly, there is Lycra, the god of youth. 
also known as Tupei, the god of hair restoration. Nipantak, the god of cosmetic surgery and triathlon, the god of extreme sports. Where is your identity? Is your identity in what you look like or is your identity in God? There are certain things that can get us caught up, get in the way of who we really need to be worshipping. Then the goddess Dosh, the god of wealth and possessions. Subdeities of Dosh are Argos, the cheap consumer god, goods god. Ferrari, the god of fast cars. Or Saga, the god of comfortable retirement. What are we putting our trust into? Are we putting our trust into God? Then there's the, the God called Prudence, the God of security. The God of a full bank account, also perhaps known as Retro, the God of nostalgia. What are we putting our trust into? Lastly, the twin gods of Exhaustus, the God of work, and Kudos, the God of status. Sub-deities there are Bonus, the god of success, Agenda, the god of meetings, and Sardine, the god of commuting. See, it's not work that gives us our identity. It's God. It's him who we should come to and worship. It's him that we should be able to turn and say, Our Father. It's him whom we pray for his kingdom to be fully established around us and more importantly in us and in our lives. It's him that gives us what we need, our basic needs but also our spiritual needs. It's him that we need to regularly go back to and identify the things that we need to seek forgiveness for. It's him who will forgive us. It's him who as we develop a relationship with him through prayer will constantly keep us away from temptation. It is he that is God. He has won. He is powerful. He is the one that should be glorified. And we need to humble ourselves and recognize that. Prayer is powerful. Let's pray. Just as we close our eyes and bow our heads, I just let you reflect for a few moments, just in silence, as we just consider who it is that we are approaching, whose throne it is. Who is it that has all the power? What are those attributes that we should be recognizing? Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for the way that you have saved us, for your Son that was sent to die for us, for the way that has been opened up for us, that we can call you Father. Lord, we pray for your will to be done in our lives. We pray for you to take control and for the things that get in the way, Lord, we lay them on your throne. Deal with them, Lord, I pray, by your Spirit. Give us a fresh understanding of your love.
Help us as we struggle with all of those things that go on in daily life. Help us, Lord, to have a relationship which is founded on a foundation of prayer. Help us, Lord, to understand what it means to pray to you continually in all that we do. Lord, help us grow, I pray. Give us what we need on a daily basis. And Lord, protect us. And protect those that we know and love around us. As together we, with each other, seek to better understand you, your love for us, the purposes you have for us, and what it is that you want us to do today, tomorrow, this week, and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.